and welcome to the second episode of About This. About This is a bi-weekly show where I sit down with writers and journalists and discuss their work. I'm your host, Jessica Dresch, and today I'll be speaking with writer Jackson Arn, who recently had a piece published in the Hedgehog Review. He asks a fundamental question, why do we keep thinking the worst of ourselves? My name is Jackson Arn. I am a freelance journalist, uh, and I wrote a piece on Hannah Arendt and Stanley Milgram and Kidisha Navese for the Hedgehog Review, which is an excellent publication that your listeners should definitely check out, not just for my article, but for all the other good ones that they publish. Okay, so your article, it's titled Thinking the Worst of Ourselves. So can you give me a little recap of the article? And what do you mean by thinking the worst of ourselves? Sure. Let's see. Let's see. I have had a weird time of being a freelancer in the last year and a half. I mean, it's never a normal time to be a freelance journalist, but especially as an arts critic with a lot of museums and galleries and whatnot closed in in the, the COVID era, uh, that presented a bit of a challenge for me because there weren't so many new things for me to uh, review. So I was brainstorming for things to write about and I had been reading some Hannah Arendt at the time and it occurred to me that there were these three pretty significant milestones in the way that we understand human nature and they all happened within just a couple months of each other. So one would be the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the uh, the Nazi official in Jerusalem in, I believe, 1961. Uh, The other would be the Milgram shock experiment in Connecticut just a couple months later. And then the third would be the murder of Kitty Genovese in Queens, New York in 1964. And yeah, this this was not... (laughs) <laughs> this was not pegged to any book or new movie or show. It was just something that I thought was super interesting. And uh, yeah, just because I had some extra time on my hands, I wanted to explore this sort of large, very nebulous, open-ended topic. So yeah, it, it, it occurred to me that these three stories, because they are stories, I mean, they, they happen, but they're stories at the same time they happen within just a couple of years of each other and in a way they're, they're they're the same story actually and as in any fable there's a moral and the moral is that human beings are by nature wicked um even if we ourselves don't inflict harm on other people we are totally willing to just sit back and watch as other people do it and we may even enjoy being an audience for that for that evil which means that we are complicit so in the article, you talk about psychology versus pop psychology. Can you explain pop psychology? Yeah, they're they're connected, but they're not quite the same. I would say that psychology is factual, it's empirical, it has some sort of basis in data and experiment. The problem, as I see it, is that psychology is not always so interesting for the layperson. It's certainly not as interesting for me. Pop psychology 
is a sort of simplified, maybe bowdlerized version of psychology, where all that complexity is distilled down to, again, it's a word I'm going to use a lot, a sort of fable or moral. So if you think of some of the sort of classic pop psychology tropes, you might think of things like, you know, when mothers see their kids under a pickup truck, they just magically become super strong and they get an adrenaline rush and they can lift the pickup truck off their kids. Or, you know, everyone has this idea that you only use, what is it, 10% of your brain power. If only you could take, you know, a pill like Bradley Cooper in that movie. Yeah, it's insane that that is a movie. Like, how did that become a movie? Because if you just Google how much brain power we use, we use all of it. Right, exactly. Okay. You use all of your brain power. But that's the perfect example. Like, it may be true that you only use 10% of your brain power for actual conscious cognition but all of your brain is working. It's working regulating your body and your heartbeat and your nervous system. So yeah, you can see how actual psychology sort of, sort of gets simplified into pop psychology, which is maybe more interesting or exciting or sexy. So yeah, pop psychology would be more of the myth of real psychology. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. So you mentioned this a little bit, but you talk about these three events and uh, experiments, trials. So there's the Eichmann trial in 1961, the Milgram shock experiment that same year, and then the Kitty Genovese murder in 1964. And you explain some of the discourse happening around that time. It was right after World War II. There was this uh, rhetoric of why wouldn't it happen here? So can you just explain that discourse a little? Sure. Uh... I mean, it's it's interesting to me that most of the key people involved in the reporting of those three events that you just mentioned were Jewish. And in the case of Hannah Arendt and Stanley Milgram, they had very direct, clear experience with the Holocaust. Hannah Arendt had been detained. Stanley Milgram actually spent part of his childhood in a house in Brooklyn with members of his family who were Holocaust survivors. And I, I, I think it's fair to say that a, a, a good amount of post-war discourse was coming to, the ter coming to terms with the Holocaust and what it was and how it could possibly have happened in this ostensibly very civilized country that produced Goethe and Schiller and the automobile and this and that. How on earth is that possible? And the disturbing conclusion, which I think a lot of people came to, was that if it could happen there, it could happen anywhere. It could happen in the United States, another industrialized Western power. Um, and while it's certainly true that that possibility had perhaps more resonance for Jewish families who had some personal familial connection to the Holocaust, uh, you could find it everywhere in post-war discourse. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying thought and there isn't an easy answer. I'm going to have you walk through the Milgram shock experiment and then the Kitty Genovese murder. So starting with the Milgram experiment, um, I mean, I haven't really <laughs> learned about it since high school. And I just, I remember that one guy in that black and white gritty video just in total distress about having to click that final voltage button. So can you just walk me through the Milgram shock experiment? What was it? So uh, Stanley Milgram was a researcher at Yale at the time. 
He wanted to investigate the phenomenon of obedience to authority. And he thought that the best way to do that was a blind study, which is to say a study in which people volunteered for what they thought was one experiment, but it was actually another. So he recruited people from the Connecticut area. They were told they were going to be involved in an experiment about pain and shock, uh, shocks and the effect of pain and shocking on cognition. That's what they were told. That's not actually what the experiment was about. But from their perspective, they arrived at the lab. Um, they were briefed in what would go on. They were divided into two groups, an experimenter and a learner. Um, supposedly, there was a coin toss that would determine which was which, but actually the coin toss was fake, so that a hired actor would be the learner, and the real volunteer would always be the experimenter. And so once they'd been divided in that way, the experimenter's job was to read a list of questions to the learner and ask them questions. And if they got the question right, they would get to move on. And if not, they would get a shock. And the shocks were at first pretty mild, but as the experiment went on, the shocks got increasingly severe. And by the end of it, the volunteers were actually being asked to give what they thought were lethal 450 volt shocks to a perfect stranger. So that's what seemed to be happening from their perspective. The real point of the experiment was to answer the question, would ordinary people in this New Haven area murder someone that they didn't know just because of an impressive looking uh, scientist in a lab coat with a clipboard told them to do so? And yes, that was the, that was the setup for the experiment. I guess we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about what it means. What was the finding that stuck in pop psychology? Right. So, so the, the psychological result that Milgram came to was that a majority of participants in the experiment were obedient to authority in the sense that they would follow the directions of the scientist in the lab coat and they would shock the stranger. Okay, so now we know what the Milgram experiment was or we think we know what it was, what is overlooked? Like the details, facts that are left out? So many things are overlooked, so many things. One important thing that's overlooked is that, well, gosh, there's so much. One thing is that the scientist who was giving directions to the volunteer was supposed to follow this very strict script. Uh, most of the scientists actually deviated from that script. They improvised lines in order to encourage the participant to uh, press the, uh, the, uh, the button and administer the shock. Um, that may seem like a small thing, but it attests to the fact that this was not actually a very well-run experiment. Another problem with the experiment was that there's something called the volunteer personality in uh, experiments, and the idea there is that who signs up to be involved in an experiment? It's not just your average person. It tends to be a person who is sort of interested in helping other people, interested in volunteering. It's just called the volunteer personality. It seems fair to say that the kind of person who would want to sign up for a long study in some New Haven basement would perhaps also be the kind of person who would be more obedient to authority. So the results of the experiment don't necessarily say anything about the human race in general, just perhaps this volunteer personality. Another big problem, which is totally symptomatic at the time, but 
should certainly make us raise our eyebrows is that all of the participants were men. And a final problem, which Milgram was never really able to investigate, is that there are reasons to think that some or perhaps even a majority of the participants in that initial study knew or sensed that this was a hoax. It was a fake. They didn't actually think they were shocking a person. They thought it was some sort of a game. Uh, they were play acting. And uh, they didn't actually think that they were administering a lethal shock to a stranger. As you can imagine, it's very, very difficult to measure that. Um, but at least in that initial version of the experiment, Milgram did not measure it at all. His conclusion was simply that a majority of people, not men, just people, were obedient to authority and would always press the press the wicked button. So the same exact thing, but we're going to do it with the Kitty Genovese murder. I believe this was in 1964. It was reported by the New York Times. Walk me through what happened or what we think happened. Right. So the version of the story that I had always heard is that there was a woman in Kitty Genovese. She was in Queens. She was walking home late one night and she was attacked. She was attacked. She screamed for help. 38 people heard her screams. 38 people refused to help her. Nobody called the police. Nobody came down to defend her. Nobody did anything except for stand in the window and watch the horrific spectacle. So the reason that I had always thought that was true, and the, I suppose the reason why a majority of people still think it's true is that the New York Times reported this story in that way. Um, it began with uh, the, the, the story that Martin Gansberg wrote about Kitty Genovese began with the sentence, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Just from taking psychology in high school, I learned the same story, and it paints this grotesque picture of just how spineless people are when, when involved in, in a violent act like that, but it's actually not true. This story is just fabricated. So what again, what is overlooked here? What are the missing details and facts? Mm -hmm. Again, so many things. To begin with, it was very late at night. It was a windy night. Uh, the journalist Gansberg had no basis, none at all, for saying that 38 people heard the attack and stood at their window and watched. That has no basis in fact. It's also not correct that uh, no one called the police. It, it's actually true that two people called their operator and asked for the local police station and told them what was going on. Um, there, there wasn't a 911 number in New York at the time, and actually the, the Genovese case was a big impetus for instituting 911, but two people did actually call the police and ask for help. And one person, uh, she was actually a friend of, of Kitty's, actually did come downstairs and risk her own life to help her friend. And actually, Kitty Genovese did not die alone on the street as the article suggests. She actually died in the arms of her friend who had risked her life to come downstairs and help. But yeah, the way that that story is remembered is always as this classic illustration of the bystander effect, which is that when there's danger, the more people surround the danger, the less likely even one of them is to act. 
That's just not true, at least in this case. Why are we holding on to this idea that humans are evil and that we have this like evil inside that's just like waiting to come out? Oh gosh, that I guess that's the million dollar question. I don't pretend to have a complete answer, but I've come up with a couple pop, you know, a couple possibilities that I think are connected. One which we sort of already talked about is the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust created a lot of legitimate questions about the average person's capacity for evil. And with that evidence, so pervasive and so shocking and so gruesome, it did raise legitimate questions about whether the ordinary person was capable of terrible things. So that's certainly some important context. Uh, At the risk of just being very blunt, it's a really cool story. I mean, if you think about Martin Gansberg, the author of the original Times piece about Kitty's murder, uh, he was actually challenged on a lot of the details of that case at the time. Um, There was a reporter from WNBC who asked him, hey, why did you put this number in? That's factually incorrect. And his response, which sort of distills this all down to a fine point, is it would have ruined the story. And it's a great story. It's gripping. You, you can't help but be enthralled by something like that that's so shocking on the face of it. So it's, it's certainly attractive in that way, perverse as that might sound. And I think there's also, as, as I write, sort of, a, sort of almost like a Pascal's wager going on, which is to say, we don't know for sure if human nature is fundamentally good and Rousseauian and altruistic. We don't know for sure that it's fundamentally evil and nihilistic and fascist, but isn't it safer to assume the latter, that human beings are fundamentally evil and obedient to tyranny? Isn't it safer to assume that and be proven wrong than to assume that people are fundamentally good and be proven wrong? So I think when you put those three together, I think that that gets to perhaps the gist of the problem. It's some combination of those. You write in the article, uh, I'll just read the sentence, quote, this is the strange thing about conventional wisdom. It is nourished, not weakened by the evidence against it, unquote. So I'm in a class right now called Writing and Criticism, and we just finished this book by Marshall Alcorn called The Resistance to Learning. And the entire book is, is pretty much about this one sentence, that people cannot process new information that counteracts their tied up emotional beliefs like for example he says if you hear something new you read something new and it triggers an anxiety response it's uh, it triggers shame anger you will not process that information like it'll be lodged into your unconscious um, the meaning will be morphed and so he talks about this backfire effect meaning You know, society is so consumed with facts, like facts versus fiction. Um, But there's a backfire effect in that when when you show someone facts and evidence to sway them to a different belief, it has the opposite effect. They're actually gonna burrow deeper into their belief systems because it's triggering this emotional response. Alcorn explains humans are emotional beings. Like we don't think through bar graphs and data, we think through how our emotions make us feel about something. So 
with having this in mind, your sentence, what I just said, like, what does this say about us? What does this say about our political landscape or even just like daily lives? Oh, gosh. Uh, it says a lot and it's not great. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it says for one that a lot of the recent discourse about fake news and resistance to the facts is not particularly recent at all. It's, it's a much deeper and worse problem than a lot of pundits now are making it out to be. I mean, I completely agree with what you quoted from that book. When you hear a fact that flies in the face of your belief, you do dig in your heels more. You double down on something that actually seems to be less true than it was before you heard that piece of evidence. I think perhaps this has always been true. I don't think there's anything intrinsically good or bad about it, although it certainly creates a lot of dangers. And we see that certainly with Milgram and, and Eichmann and, and Genovese, that's certainly the case. Yeah. I think part of the problem is that we believe that we are more factually inclined than we really are. We believe that we are more swayed by truth and evidence than in fact we really are. Perhaps it's about being more honest with ourselves and understanding that we're actually somewhat irrational and, and because it is that initial belief that we are factually correct and that we, we, we do have all the answers that makes us so defensive and so insecure and so much more likely to dig in our heels and double down on a falsehood. You write that it's just concerning that so many people would rather believe that humans are evil and like where do you see us going from here? At the end of your article you write about we need to focus on friendship and love and can you just elaborate on on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the point that I've been circling around both with you and in the article is that there is no way of proving what human nature is. That's such an abstract question that no scientific experiment is ever going to answer it satisfactorily. Uh, to some extent, I suppose that's what the humanities are for, and that's what literature and religion and philosophy do. But there again, there's never going to be any correct ultimate answer. Uh, that's why the conclusion that I would say I come to at the end of this article isn't that Milgram and Gansberg and Arendt were wrong, not that they were right, but that we can never really know. So because we never have total certainty, because it's always in some ways a matter of belief and a matter of choosing to believe one thing rather than another, why wouldn't you want to believe the best of human nature? It is in some way a choice. It is in some ways always gonna be a leap of faith. So if you're going to choose to believe in something and take that leap of faith, why not choose to believe in altruism? I mean, it seems to me that the really concerning problems of our lifetime are always presented with the asterisk that yes, this is incredibly serious and incredibly destructive. And yet the most powerful, educated, organized society in the history of the world can't possibly solve those things. And why not? Because we are fundamentally chaotic or destructive or disorganized. There's always that implicit asterisk or very, very often. So 
Yeah, I, I have to say, if we're going to solve a problem like global warming, if such a thing is even possible, it does require kind of a leap of faith that requires believing not just that we are capable of altruism and capable of sacrificing our needs for other peoples, but that altruism really is a vital part of us. It's as much a part of human nature as obedience to authority or that fascistic impulse that Arendt wrote about. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me.